So, hello and welcome to episode four. I've made it this far. Um, so the last episode, I shared with you some sermons from a few choice revivalist preachers, kind of describing hell and showing you some of the heinous ideas that had been spread. And I thought at the beginning of this, I would talk to you about some other things that have been a little more recent even. And some of these I'm going to delve into um, in future episodes and just kind of take them apart, I think, just for fun and see how they work. Uh, One of them, and I think this is probably the most blatant, is the Hell House. I don't know if you've ever heard of a Hell House, if you've ever been to a haunted house. Imagine that meets up with the worst kind of church... Easter drama. Okay. You go into generally a church building and inside this church building, it looks like a haunted house. There's blood, there's guts, there's scary faces, there's lights, there's dark music. You have a guide that takes you through. And in each segment of the hell house, you're going to find a scene that's common to everyday life is what they're going to tell you. But of course it's things like drug addicts shooting up and overdosing someone committing suicide, someone dying from a botched abortion, um, someone having premarital sex and then being, you know, infected with chlamydia or something worse, dying of AIDS. And each of these people then um, acts out their judgment and they're being cast into hell for all eternity. So that whatever category you find yourself in or think you might slip into, you're let to know that, hey, if you don't pull it together right now, your bacon's fried and it's going to continue to fry. Not for one age or 10,000 age or 10,000 millions of an age. Remember those sermons that we were reading, but forever and ever. Okay. And at the end of it. They're going to take each person that comes through there and they are going to ask them if they want to pray the sinner's prayer right there in front of everybody after they've seen all of this. They've just had a depiction of this gospel doctrine played out in front of them and now they're being asked, hey, so you want to have a personal relationship with a cuddly Jesus? Doesn't that sound like fun? Don't you want to get engaged with a God that Uh, you know, is going to fry your ass if you don't. So, of course, you know, the salvation rate at these things is damn near 100% because who could resist that? I mean, even if you don't believe it, a lot of people are going to say yes to it just to keep other people around them from pressuring them into doing it again and again and again and asking them to summer camp and dragging them to their youth group every Wednesday night and... You know, just all of it. Um, Because there's this compulsion among the evangelicals to convince everyone that they have to be in this club. They have to do this or they're going to burn forever. And it's interesting because when you look this stuff up, you have two kinds of stories about it. Well, maybe three. There's some that are legit 
media reporting. And it's just kind of a curiosity. It's, it's, I suppose it's a human interest piece. Maybe it goes on their religion page if it's for a newspaper. I don't know. But they do basically a review of the thing and talk about how long it's been going on. Some of them have been going on since the late 90s. It's been going for a while. And people come and they actually pay money to go into these things. They use them as fundraisers. And some of them claim that they've had over 600 people commit their lives to Jesus because of it. Then you'll find... The brag pages for the actual, you know, church or nonprofit that puts it on, talking about how great it is and how their volunteers are so blessed to be a part of something like this, and on and on and on about how many people have gotten touched and stuff. And then you'll find uh, evangelical reviews, and when I say evangelical, I mean by evangelists, by pastors or bloggers, um, church leaders of some stripe that will review these things. And some are more positive than others. But generally, if there's any rebuke whatsoever, it's just that, oh, this probably isn't the best way to introduce people to the idea of hell. Feels a little manipulative. Oh, but you still believe in a lake of fire and a God that will cast people there for tens of millions of ages end to end, right? And roast them. And they never lose sensation, and their bodies and souls are melded into one so that they feel it better. But the Hell House, that's probably over the top. Okay. Fair enough. It's what you believe. I get it, but it makes me a little bit angry. Because I don't think it's actually in the book. Then you have the... um, How do you say this? The Atheist Apologists who attack it directly and just basically ridicule it and make fun of it and say, what is this? You know, why, like teenagers need another reason to be screwed up. Um, These things are probably keeping therapists in business all across the country, you know? And I just look at this and I think, so if you do something like this, the best outcome is that you scare some kid into praying a prayer and probably attending church for a year or two. That's that's your that's your win. Now, the ones who don't what goes on with them because I'm guessing they fall into a couple of categories. Kids who belong to other churches who don't teach the same way you do and are confident that they don't need to worry this much about a lake of fire. <laughs> Because it's not a thing. Kids who feel they can't commit to it because they don't understand it or agree with it or believe in it. But they're still afraid of it. And so it just lingers with them. And then you probably have the kids who are consider themselves to be atheists. And I think, though, at this age that it, it would be hard for someone, unless they'd really done a lot of study, to be that confident in that. And so they have to go through... To me, they would, a lot of them probably go through some psychological stuff after that of determining, okay, I'm not going to believe this. And I think it would be something, it would be a belief they'd have to almost actively reject. Because what if? You know? Because as a teenager, if there's anything you want, it's backups on everything, right? You want to know that something's going to pan out for you in the end. 
You don't ever want to be the one that's left out. You don't want to be the one that, you know, can't get what they want out of their eternal existence. So I think a lot of kids get coerced into it. And the bad part is then they become a part of this whole chain of events where then the next year they're volunteering at the hell house and scaring the crap out of kids and trying to get them to follow this macabre Jesus who will throw them into a lake of fire if they don't repent. That's pretty disturbing to me. So I just, you know, that to me is, is kind of the equivalent. It may be worse because here you have not one man getting up and giving this oratory from the pulpit, which we understand. Um, ironically, I think that both of these things are closely connected because one is a dramatic performance and the other is a sermon. But both are dramatic performances, honestly, especially in this case, because the doctrine itself is inaccurate. And I used to talk to my dad about this all the time, that acting and preaching are not that different. And he agreed. He said, yes, because you practice this and you want to get your intonation and your pace and, you know, make sure that you have the right resources in the right places and you're saying the right things, you're asking the right questions, you're using the right inflection um, the hand gestures, facial expressions. My dad liked to use props sometimes. Um, so you've got all of that involved and it's all geared towards getting the right response out of that audience. So I think that these two are connected and I don't think that you can, um, I think this is just the modern version of that type of preaching, but they spend a lot more money and a lot more time and a lot more energy on putting it together. And it affects many, many more people instead of the few hundred that might have been sitting in some small London church, um, you know, to hear one of Spurgeon's sermons, of course, his were generally written down. They were recorded and published later. Um, his written notes, so many, many preachers would read them later, and I don't know if they were ever published in a way that the general congregation would read them again or not. Possibly so. So his words would have reached a pretty big audience, but you know, some of these hell houses have hundreds of kids a year going through them, and it takes place over a couple of weekends, and it's a big deal in the town. And because you got 600 salvations, but then you also have 5,000 little Christian kids who came through there, and they were like, get a refresher course it's kind of like a vaccination booster against hell right oh can't you know choose sex before marriage can't choose alcohol can't choose drugs can't choose suicide can't uh you know steal because you'll end up in a gang war and get shot and go to hell you know things like that that's what's actually in these things getting hit by a car and you die without ever knowing jesus then what um you know, it's it's really, it's a scare tactic is what it is. And I don't think that's ever appropriate. I don't think it's ever necessary. And I certainly don't think it's the best way to talk with people about the kingdom of heaven or Jesus. And I will, if I continue this podcast long enough, I will get to that point. And I know um, that there are a lot of questions that I still have and I'm answering myself in some ways. All right. So let's talk about uh, hell in the New Testament. 
Hello and welcome back to Hell Sucks. This is episode four, and this one will be part two of what the Bible says about hell. I'll be digging into the New Testament and specifically the teachings of Jesus, since he's pretty much the only one that says a lot about it in the New Testament. Um, the whole podcast is not going to be based on this one topic, but it is more about my journey out of the mainline traditional mainstream American evangelical church to a deeper understanding of who God is and what the kingdom of heaven is supposed to be. And uh, as I start this one out, I wanted to talk to you about um, a few things. I I went through and showed uh, in episode three, if you haven't listened to the first three episodes, you might want to, so you'll kind of get what I'm talking about. I've talked about how I feel that hell sucks as a motivator for religion or Christianity in particular because it poisons everything it touches, and it turns everyone into a fire insurance salesman. And neither of those things is really beneficial when it comes to sharing the love of a boundless God. It just it isn't. It's just not very conducive to that. And I think it's antithetical to the teachings of Jesus. And I'm going to point that out today. I think you'll see where I'm coming from on this. And at the end of my last episode, I left with this kind of statement, which was, I think that after you study the mentions of hell in the Old Testament, you can come to one of two conclusions. Either hell exists, and it is not uh, a permanent state of torture for the individuals who end up residing there, or hell does not exist. One of those two things has got to be true. Um, either that or there is a ginormous conspiracy to exclude information about hell from the Old Testament among the Jews and the Christians um, to keep people from finding out for some reason. And I can't figure out, that to me would be even more evil, because then that means that man knew that hell was coming, and they saw God's warning of it, which doesn't exist in our existing Bible, and uh, they decided that no one needed that which would be really jacked up, right? Wouldn't be the worst thing that they've ever done, but it certainly would be one of them. Um, so if it didn't come from the Old Testament, the Hebrew you know, understanding of God and, and the, the tradition of the Jewish uh, community, which is what Jesus based his teachings out of, then where did the doctrine of endless torment originate? I mean, I see where we get original sin. Adam opens Pandora's box, sin comes into the world, death follows it. I see that everyone's infected by that, I get it. I even understand how people came up with the doctrine of total depravity after the flood, although I don't necessarily agree. I think that the verse that says that every thought of man's heart was continually upon evil is specifically referring to that generation of people that existed that were completely and utterly destroyed in the flood. And I don't think that it's true that every thought of man's heart is continually upon evil. I think there's a lot of really great people in the world who do things for all kinds of altruistic and unselfish reasons. We see them every day. Um, So then where does it come from? So as I've discussed it, you can see that it, it just it didn't originate in the Old Testament, either before or during the Mosaic Law. Um, 
So there is a, a lot of evidence, more than I'm going to share on this podcast, that suggests that it originated in Egypt and the concept was uh, widespread throughout the religious world. Um, St. Augustine, commenting on the purpose of the doctrine of hell and, and things like it, said this, This seems to have been done on no other account, but as it was the business of princes out of their wisdom and civil prudence to deceive the people in their religion, princes under the name of religion persuaded the people to believe those things true, which they themselves knew to be idle fables, by this means for their own ease in government, trying them the more closely, tying them the more closely to civil society. So in other words, this is Augustine, City of God, Book 4. Um, cited by Thayer, who is the same Thayer that came up with Thayer's lexicon, uh, numbered all of the Greek uh, vocabulary that's used, the Greek and Hebrew vocabulary that's used um, throughout the Bible, and that numbering system is used in Strong's Concordance. If you've ever been a student of the Bible and you've you've used those texts, this is that Thayer. He was a very analytical man, and he quotes from Augustine here. So what Augustine is trying to tell us is that this was done by political leaders in order to create a sense of control um, among church members that could be used by the civil authorities to tie the church more closely uh, into civil society. So <laughs> contriving doctrines just to control people? Who would have thunk, right? Well, the Greek and Roman world was not surprised by this at all. And somewhere between in the what's called the intertestamental period, the 400 years be- between the end of Malachi and the beginning of uh, the book of Matthew or the book or the beginning of the book of Luke um, is probably where the best place to start that. It's about 400 years in there. Somewhere in that period, uh, the Jews got involved in this. They picked it up from the Greeks and the Romans. And that's not surprising because the synagogue system came into place. Rabbis became political figures. There was a lot of power involved um, in that because they were governed by Rome, but they also kind of had their own separate enclaves where they could manage their own business as long as they didn't step out of line. And those Roman governors would give um, the Jewish courts and the Jewish teachers a lot of leeway in how they managed their people as long as their people didn't become too political, or, and this is another one, proselytize. They weren't allowed to do that. They couldn't convert new people into their religion openly. Um, so the Jews got involved in this, and as the concept of endless torture and torment, it began appearing in the apocryphal books that were written specifically by Egyptian Jews. Okay, so those books that were penned by survivors of the Exodus um, were the ones that were bringing this in. And most of those texts no longer exist in uh, the Protestant Bible, so we're not familiar with them. Those of us who didn't grow up in more liturgical denominations, uh, in the more orthodox sects of Christianity. So Thayer also writes this. He says... Polybius, the historian, says, Since the multitude is ever fickle, full of lawless desires, irrational passions, and violence, there is no other way to keep them in order 
but by the fear and terror of the invisible world, on which account our ancestors seem to me to have acted judiciously when they contrived to bring into the popular belief those notions of the gods and of the infernal regions. So this historian is saying, uh, he's a Roman, I believe, um, he's saying that uh, there doesn't seem to be any other reason for them to have brought hell into it. And they needed to use things that were unseen. So special knowledge. Um, you know, I'm smarter than you and I can see this and I have spiritual insights. So here's what's going to happen to you if you don't comply. Kind of feels like some of the things that's happening in the political world right now, doesn't it? There's a lot of fear over certain certain things that are going to make huge changes in American society. And I'm not saying that those things are not true, but I'm saying that it feels like a similar situation. The celebrated historian Livy um, speaks of it in the same spirit. And uh, he praises the wisdom of Numa because he invented the fear of the gods as a most efficacious means of governing an ignorant and barbarous populace. Uh, Strabo, the geographer, says, The multitude are restrained from vice by the punishments the gods are said to inflict upon offenders and by those terrors and threatenings which certain dreadful words and monstrous forms imprint upon their minds. Words like hell. For it is impossible to govern the crowd of men and all the common rabble by philosophical reasoning and lead them to piety, holiness, and virtue, but this must be done by superstition or the fear of the gods by means of fables and wonders. For the thunder, the aegis, the trident, the torches of the furies, the dragons and etc. are all fables, as is also all the ancient theology. These things the legislatures used as scarecrows to terrify the childish multitude. So that's an interesting thought. What he's basically saying is that the Romans were using all of these superstitions to do this same thing. And this is in that same period, right before the rise of Christianity, and it's becoming a popular uh, it's in vogue among the Jewish teachers to start to incorporate some of this. Um, there was a lot of fear of stepping out of line and not, you know, following the law. A lot of it. Uh, I'm going to mispronounce this name because it's Roman, but it's Timaeus Locris, the Pythagorean. After stating that the doctrine of rewards and punishments after death is necessary to society, says the following. For as we sometimes cure the body with unwholesome remedies, when such as are most unwholesome produce no effect, so we restrain those minds with false relations which will not be persuaded by the truth. So he's saying in medicine we sometimes do things that seem like they do more harm than good because the stuff we thought would help doesn't help. So in modern day parlance that would be chemotherapy and surgery and radiation, things like that that do a lot of damage to the body but, but can bring about a lot of healing. And so he's saying that if a person can't be told the truth and, and get their mind to comply, if you can't say to someone, look, if you do the right thing, your life will be better. You will reap what you sow. It's a, it's a given. Everyone knows this karma. It's a universal thing. I know a lot of humanists and a lot of uh, atheists claim not to believe in it, but it's cause and effect. It's if you're nice, people will generally tend to be nicer to you. If you're a jerk, people will tend to respond in like kind. It's not that complicated. But if people can't be convinced by that, then you have to bring out the dragons. Okay? Um, Plato, in his commentary on Timaeus, fully endorses what he says respecting the fabulous invention of foreign torments. 
And Strabo says that Plato and the Brahmins of India invented fables concerning the future judgments of hell, and Chrysippus blames Plato for attempting to determine from wrong by frightful stories of future punishments. So, all these Romans are getting into it. Plutarch also treats the subject in the same way, sometimes arguing for them with great solemnity and earnestness, and on other occasions calling them fabulous stories, the tales of mothers and nurses. So when it suits his, you know, narrative, (laughs) politicians haven't changed. Plutarch will tell these stories and, and encourage this superstition. And when he feels like poo-pooing it, then he'll say, ah, it's nothing but a bunch of wives' tales. Yeah. Um, Seneca, those things which make the infernal regions terrible, the darkness, the prison, the river of flaming fire, the judgment seat, and company are all a fable with which the poets amuse themselves and by them agitate us with vain terrors. Now, remember, these guys are not Christians. They're not Jews. So they might have a reason to call everything that Christians and Jews believe as a fable, but they are pointing out that specifically these ideas are being used among the Romans and the Greeks, and these Egyptian Jews are bringing it into vogue. Um, so they're pointing out that this is being done. It's, it's not necessarily an indictment of the specific doctrines being taught, but the idea behind them. Aristotle has been handed down in mythical form, from earliest times to posterity, that there are gods, and that the divine deity compasses all nature. All beside this has been added after the mythical style for the purpose of persuading the multitude and for the interest of the laws and the advantage of the state. So Aristotle's saying, okay, there's a god, and he created the earth, but pretty much everything else that's been added to that, we don't know anything about it. It's all been made up to suit whatever political ends uh, is you know, best for the people who are in charge at that time. Moshin, in his legendary Institutes of Ecclesiastical History, described the permeation among the Jews of these fables during the period between the Old and New Testaments. Errors of a very pernicious kind had infested this whole body of the people. There prevailed among them several absurd and superstitious notions concerning the divine nature, invisible powers, magic, which they had partly brought with them from the Babylonian captivity and partly derived from the Egyptians, Syrians, and Arabians who lived in their neighborhood. The ancestors of those Jews who lived in the time of our Savior had brought from Chaldea and the neighboring countries many extravagant and idle fancies which were utterly unknown to the original founders of the nation. So Moses and Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and Aaron, who was the first high priest, they didn't know anything about this stuff. And it all came into being sometime in between uh, Malachi and the birth of Christ. Uh Here's an interesting article from the Encyclopedia Americana, and this is cited by Thayer, that same theological um, investigator that I was talking about earlier. The Hebrews received their doctrine of demons from two sources. At the time of the Babylonish captivity, they derived it from the source of the Chaldaic Persian magic, and afterward, during the Greek supremacy in Egypt, they were in close intercourse with these foreigners, particularly in Alexandria, and added to the magician notions those borrowed from this Egyptic Grecian source. This connection and mixture are seen chiefly in the New Testament. It was impossible to prevent the intermingling of Greek speculations. The voice of the prophets was silent. Study and inquiry had commenced 
The study and inquiry had commenced. The popular belief in philosophy separated, and even the philosophers divided themselves into several sects, Sadducees, Pharisees, and Essenes, and Platonic and Pythagorean notions intermingled with Oriental doctrines had already unfolded the germ of the Hellenistic and Kabbalistic philosophy. This was the state of things when Christ appeared. So, there's something that my dad used to say um, about the two main... The Essenes, we don't hear much about in the New Testament because they went out into the desert and they created their own culture and kind of started a, a, a monastery. So they don't really have a lot to do with it, except there is some connection, I believe, with John Baptist. Um, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he used to say this. He said, the Pharisees, at least they believed in the resurrection of the soul, the eternal nature of man. And that's fair, I see. Pharisee. He tell me this when I was a kid, right? So I still remember it. The Sadducees believed that when you died, that was it. You were done. And that's sad, you see. So that's what he used to tell me. So basically, the Pharisees believed in the esoteric, the spiritual world. The Sadducees believed that what you see in this world was all there was, and that everything pertained to this life. So there was this debate between them over who should be in charge, right? Um, and using doctrines like hell helped them, using doctrines uh, about demonic activity and possession and things of that nature helped them to gain control over people. So as we come into the New Testament, there's some references back to the Old Testament about this type of thing. Luke wrote in Acts 7 that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. So here's something interesting about that. Even though Moses knew all the Egyptian concepts, he doesn't say a damn thing about eternal torment or torture in any of his writings. And he's, he is, he, essentially, he's the father of Judaism. Because he's the one who recorded God's law and handed it down and then served as you know, chief justice, essentially, for the rest of his life. Um, as they were coming across in the wilderness, and he set them up for when they moved into Canaan to operate in this tribal government sort of way. And he doesn't say anything about it, ever. So that kind of ends the theory that this came from the Old Testament. It evidently came in um, during the time between Malachi and... Uh, the birth of Jesus recorded in Luke. Okay, so we've been talking about Hades in the New Testament um, and how it's used to describe judgment against a group of people. And Jesus specifically uses it in reference to the city of Capernaum. Uh, he says it would go down into Hades. It was going to vanish. And Jesus also said that his generation of Jews was going to fall into Hades. So Edward Fudge, um, he was a historian that covered some of the preachers that I was referencing earlier. He said, in Greek mythology, Hades was the god of the underworld. Then... It was used as the name of the netherworld itself. 
Sharon ferried the souls of the dead across the river Styx or Acheron into this abode, where the watchdog Cerberus guarded the gate so none might escape. The pagan myth contained all the elements from medieval eschatology. Um, side note here, that's what we were talking about with the Catholics coming in and creating this mythology around what hell was and expanding the biblical view so that they could describe specific tortures that people would experience if they went there. It's all the brick kiln stuff that I was reading earlier. Um, so, there was the pleasant Elysium, the gloomy and miserable Tartarus. Remember we mentioned that uh, in the New Testament, mentioned once as a pit where angels who had rebelled were kept until judgment. And even the plains of Asphodel, where ghosts could wander, who were suited for neither of the above. And this is where the idea of the Catholic purgatory comes from. The word Hades came into biblical usage when the Septuagint translators chose it to represent the Hebrew Sheol, an Old Testament concept vastly different from the pagan Greek notions just outlined. Sheol, too, received all the dead. But the Old Testament has no specific division there involving either punishment or reward. And this is in his book, The Fire That Consumes. Um, so... What we have a picture of here is how the mythology of the Greeks was in coming in and being added into, rolled into Christian doctrine um, at a later date. So these are where the ideas came from. So what we want to make sure is that our ideas about hell or Hades come from the Bible and not Greek mythology. So... I don't have a problem using Sheol the way the Old Testament used it to mean the grave or the hidden realm or the spirit world or Hades as the New Testament used it, which means the same thing. Both of these words refer to the dead who are unseen and they also refer many, many, many times to national judgments. So that's fine um, because those two things are clearly outlined in Scripture. So then we come to Tartarus. It's the one that's probably the trickiest to deal with here. Um, and it is translated hell in the King James Version in 1 Peter 2.4. And um, So here's what it says. For if God spared not angels when they sinned, but cast them down to hell, and committed them to pits of darkness who were being punished. So, when Second Peter was written to show that God knew how to deal with disobedience among angels, this verse shows us that they were held and then they were judged. They had a trial. They, they were you know, given a chance to answer for themselves. It doesn't say anything about fire. It doesn't say anything about torment pain, punishment, or anything else. It just says they were held there. And it doesn't say anything about anyone else being there. No humans. Um, there's no punishment for anyone else there. Or how long it would last. And it never says it would last forever. It's simply just this verse is an anomaly 
Peter's using it to describe something that happened to a specific group of angels. Um, and it doesn't have anything to do with human judgment or condemnation. So, in my next episode, I'm going to talk about what Jesus said about hell. And the word that he used was Gehenna, if you want to start looking into that. But before I get on to that, um, the popular concept of hell was completely unknown in the Old Testament. Um, it, it just didn't occur in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures that was being used at the time that Jesus was on earth, and it's what the New Testament was originally translated from because it was the most accurate text available at the time. Um, and the Jews kind of kept up with the times, so they very carefully and meticulously, through the tradition of scribes, uh, copied that from the original Hebrew manuscripts into the Greek so that they could make sure that they were very careful to maintain the accuracy of that document. And that's what was used, you know, to translate the Old Testament. Um, so, before the Mosaic Law, What was the idea of hell? Adam and Eve were the original two people mentioned in the creation story in Genesis. And I'm not going to go into whether I think this is figurative or literal, if there was an actual couple that peopled the whole earth or not. I don't think it's really all that relevant to a desire to understand the divine or have a relationship with God. But when he placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in this story, he never mentioned the concept of eternal torment to them. Now, one of the reasons he might not have done this is the idea that Adam and Eve were to be eternal in their physical bodies. The death hadn't come into the world yet. So it's possible that this was not like an oversight and he wasn't hiding things from them, right? Um, at the time of creation, because if they were going to continually live in the garden, then what did it matter? But it's kind of strange that as human history begins on the planet, God sets out one rule. There's a tree. Don't eat from it. And he gave the parents of all mankind no explanation, no warning about eternal punishment. Not a word. If there was potential for this to become a problem in the future, and the future of all of their offspring, don't you think he would have mentioned this? He did give them a warning. What did he say? He said that if you eat from this tree... In the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Death will come into the world. Your body will be corrupted. But he doesn't say anything about, oh yeah, and then after you die, um, 
I'm going to burn you in a lake of fire for all eternity. It's not even mentioned. Um, many Christians have believed for a long time that eternal torment is what waits the vast majority of mankind. Nearly all of Adam's and Eve's descendants would end up there. But here's the creator. He, he didn't even take the time to say, this is a possibility. Oh yeah, let me put a sign here. Um, nothing. So let me ask you a question. What would you think of a father who said to his son, you can't ride in the street on your bike. You're not allowed. And if he did, he would he would get a spanking. He says, I'm going to spank your butt. I'm going to punish you. I'm going to take your iPod away, iPad away. Sorry, I'm showing my age there. I'm going to take away your, what is it, Switch. That's what my kids got for Christmas this year. I'll take your Switch away if you ride your bike in the street. But then suppose he was also planning to put him on the barbecue and roast him for 50 years. But he didn't tell him. Then after he took the switch away, the punishment that he had stated would happen if you ride your bike in the street when I'm not there to observe you. He takes the kid out back and he straps him to the barbecue and he lights the fire. Can you think of any apology or defense for that father? You wouldn't think he was fair or just or doing it out of some kind of love, would you? No. So, how would it be any different if, you know, the creator of everything came to Adam and Eve and he failed to mention that there was this greater punishment than the death that they would die the day that they ate of the forbidden tree. He didn't mention anything about them opening Pandora's box, uh, original sin, um, the doctrine of total depravity, or that the default of the entire creation would now shift into this thing where they would be punished forever and ever and ever. <laughs> no. Instead, God announces to them a tangible present punishment that would begin the very day that they committed the sin. In the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. They found that the wages of sin was death. Right? But that's all it was. So we go on down through the Old Testament, we get to Cain and Abel. The same is true with Cain and Abel. Here you have the first murder ever recorded in history. Two brothers out in the field, one of them picks up a stone and bashes the other one's brain in. There's this really dramatic scene there where it talks about how the blood of your brother is crying out from the earth for vengeance. So if God was going to roll out the threat of eternal torment... And Cain was surely a target of that, right? But there was no warning. In the whole account, there's not a hint. Not anything on this subject. 
All Cain is told is that now you are cursed from the earth. When you till the ground, it won't yield to you. Um, and you'll be a fugitive and a, and a vagabond. You'll be a, a homeless person on the earth. So here it is. Cain receives an immediate, tangible, physical punishment that has a beginning and an end. When you die, it's over. And no warning of future eternal torment. Like Adam, Cain didn't get any of the dire warnings that I read to you at the beginning of this episode about what hell would be like. Um, none of that came. So, if Cain were to be punished from God without this warning, can God be a law, a just lawgiver and judge? Because that's what we believe. God is perfectly just, yes? So how is he perfectly just to impose this additional, infinitely greater punishment when nothing has been said of it? I know I sometimes felt like my parents didn't fully describe the punishment I was going to get, but we're talking about God here, right? In Genesis 4.15, God said, Whoever slays Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. Now, this is an interesting statement. How is that possible? Are there seven fiery hells? Maybe this is why Dante came up with the seven layers of hell in his book. The seventh circle of hell, you know. Maybe. I don't know. But is it possible um, that if Cain was going to be cast into a pit of fire, then anyone who killed him would be cast into seven pits of fire? I mean, what is that? Are they going to divide the body up? How does that work? I'm not trying to make a joke out of this idea. I'm just showing you that it's interesting that God doesn't mention it. So then we get to Noah, right? And this is the, the greatest story of God's wrath being poured out on humanity that is recorded in the entire biblical record. And God says that every thought of man's heart was upon evil. The whole earth was filled with violence and all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. So... Let's just say God overlooked it up until now. He was like, I don't want to mention it in the garden. It's kind of a nice place. Uh, we'll figure this out later. You know, the details aren't that important. Eh, Cain and Abel. Okay, so it's the first murder. I'm just going to, you know, let this one slide, right? But when we get to this, okay, it seems like if you're going to destroy all of mankind, and you're going to wipe them off the face of the earth with a flood. But then you're also going to throw them all into a lake of fire. Because look, every thought of their heart is continually upon evil. And the whole earth is filled with their violence. And all flesh is corrupt. So surely, if anyone's going into a lake of fire, it's got to be this crowd, right? But Noah, a preacher of righteousness, says nothing about it. There's no fire and brimstone, no hell fire in his message at all. No. His warnings were just that they were going to die. It seems like if warning people about 
hell was a great way to turn them away from evil, that he would mention it right here. And when the whole entire episode is over, he spends his 40 days and nights, you know, in the rain and the in the ark and another year floating around until the mountains are clear and he comes out. Even when God comes back and talks to him and and discusses the reestablishment of life on earth, there's no mention of hell. He says nothing. Then, you know, you get to one of the stories in the Bible that um, this is post Noah and the flood. Okay, so you would think, okay, so man has got this straightened out now, right? After all, God wiped them out with a flood, so surely they're good guys now. But then you have this little pocket of fun called Sodom and Gomorrah, these twin cities, right? So here's um, they're going to be physically destructed. And he has angels go and, and preach to them. He gives Abraham a warning. Abraham does this... Um, debate with God up on the mountain over Sodom and Gomorrah and says, if there's just 10 good men, can you spare the city? Not once does God say, well, I'm going to rain down fire and brimstone. And then after I kill them and wipe them off the face of the earth, I'm also going to throw their souls into hell. He doesn't say that. It's not mentioned. So if your government passed a new law and there was a huge fine as the punishment, but when someone was found guilty he paid the fine, but he also had to serve a sentence that was endless torture with no warning. So what kind of judge explains this law and the fine, but leaves out the part about eternal, you know, lifelong torment and, and torture? What would the penalty of a few thousand dollars or even every penny that you ever earned in this life matter if you were going to be put into a cage and tortured every day for as long as you lived. But most Christians believe that the sodomites were sent into such a judgment. In fact, they use them as an example of it. I mean, it's a, if you start going through the Old Testament, you've got the Tower of Babel, the destruction of Pharaoh and his armies, you've got Lot's wife. All of these received this temporal, in this life, physical punishment that had a beginning and an end, and there's no mention of any infinitely greater torture for them, no lake of fire, no burning, no wailing, no gnashing of teeth. So we have two questions here. The first would be the suggestion that God did say it, okay, that he told them they were going to hell, and they refused to listen, and they, they went ahead with what they were doing anyway, and it was expunged from the record. Someone came in, and they stripped it out. They just took out any mention of eternal damnation from the Old Testament, sucked it right out of there, gone. Um, the other option is that it was never there and it didn't belong because the punishment they received was the just punishment for their actions. So we know it's not there. So neither the word Gehenna, which is translated hell in the New Testament, and we're going to get to that in the next episode, or the concept of endless tor 
torture was ever given in the millennia before the law of Moses. There's thousands of years here. From the creation to Mount Sinai, there's just, there's nothing about it. So, here's my conclusion. God never had a plan of inflicting eternal damnation on anybody. I mean, it's just interesting, right? So, Christians have this thing about the Mosaic Law, which is kind of a funny thing to me, because we talk about it, Jesus was the only one who ever fulfilled it. I don't know if you've ever read Leviticus, but if you go in there and you read what's there, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, yeah, it's kind of complex, and you have to be really careful about certain things. But the truth of it is, it it's not that much. I mean, it's contained in, you know, a few thousand words, really. It's not even a novel in length, and humankind can't even follow that. It's kind of pathetic, really, but there's all of these blessings and judgments that are pronounced there, and this is when God comes down, sits on a mountain with Moses, and he gets a chance to set his own rules for a group of people, right? Up until now, it's kind of been this hodgepodge deal where he shows up, he talks to Abraham, he talks to Jacob, he talks to Isaac, he puts himself in a burning bush and speaks to Moses, Um, he sends signs to Pharaoh, you know, it's this thing where he kind of dances around and he does different things, but humanity is becoming more organized. I don't know what the thinking of God is, but we come to this place where he's finally like, okay, look, I'm going to drag Jacob's kids out of Israel. And in order to do this, um, I'm going to organize them and I'm going to give them some rules. So he does it right. And among the blessings and cursings that Moses pronounced on the Israelites in Deuteronomy 28 through 30, it's three chapters of stuff before they entered into Canaan, the promised land. If the Jews were disobedient to God, he promised them every conceivable punishment. He would curse their children. He would curse their crops. He would curse their flocks, their health, their wealth, the health of their children, the welfare of their nation, it just goes on and on. He prophesied that they would even go into captivity and they would be tortured in this life, okay? It would get so bad that it would drive them to insanity so that they would want to eat their own children. You would think that if you are going to write such an extensive list of punishments, and they're pretty horrible, and if you read them, you kind of go, jeez. What was his deal that day, right? You would think, though, that at this point, God would say something about hell. But he didn't utter a single whisper of endless torture to come beyond this life, no matter how bad the rebellion was. All of these physical, temporal judgments would take place in this life and would end when the body was separated from the spirit. So, um, okay, so 
everything is spelled out. There's nothing left to the imagination. Um, they're spelled out in minute detail, and it's never mentioned. The writer of Hebrews said that the words spoken through angels, the Mosaic law, proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. So, as we've seen, okay, there was no mention of any eternal punishment. It was all physical and temporal, with no promise of endless torment. It just wasn't known under the law. So, how is it that the writer of Hebrews can say that they all received all the punishment they were supposed to receive? Did everyone who transgressed the law receive just punishment or not? If they did, will their punishment continue to be just if in the future, at this day of reckoning, they also receive endless torment in hell that they were never warned of, never told about, never knew anything at all about? If so, will eternal torture on top of their just physical temporal punishment that's mentioned by the writer of Hebrews still be just? Is it still fair? Is it still justice? How can it be? How can adding infinite torture that goes on and on and on and on and on forever in the future that they knew nothing of to adjust punishment that they've already received in the past from the Old Testament law still be fair? Well, it can't, right? I mean, we're human and we understand this. Surely God gets it. So we come to the end of the Old Testament and there's really only one conclusion. The popular concept of hell isn't anywhere in the Old Testament. The word Gehenna is not even contained in the Greek Old Testament. And endless torture is nowhere to be found in any of it. And here's the deal, guys. There's a lot of debate to be had about the 66 books of the Protestant canon and what should have been included and what wasn't included and how they were translated and blah, blah, blah. But we're talking about the Old Testament, which was protected by the scribes from the very beginning, from the time that you know, the oral tradition of Moses was first recorded in the Torah until they completed this translation of the Septuagint. All of this, you know, record was recorded in minute detail. So you have one of two things. Either hell did not exist in the Jewish mind um, as a punishment for sin in this life, or you have a massive conspiracy to eradicate that message from the text. One of those two things must be true. So, you know, I know what you've heard in the past, but this is the actual truth. And you can look at this from any angle if you want to. And if you want more information, I'm happy to provide it. Um, I'm thinking of writing a book on the topic. But it's such an easy thing to see when you really look at it. And this is probably the biggest reason that I think that hell sucks as a motivator, because it's a lie. It's a lie. And we're going to get more into what Jesus had to say about it in the next episode. 
and uh, I didn't get a chance to share any personal information in this one. Um, these are just the, the thoughts that I kind of came across on my own, probably the biggest of those being, you know, even before I recognized that the Bible didn't teach it, was the thought, how can it be just to punish someone forever and ever and ever and ever and ever for something that happened in a temporary life that at the most is a hundred years. And even if you're Adolf Hitler from the day you're born until the day you die, how is there any justice in punishing you forever and ever and ever and ever? You can only commit a finite number of atrocities. It doesn't make sense. Um, now there are two conclusions to come to, and I will let you know this, that when you start studying this, you're going to find two camps. You're going to find those who believe that what the Bible teaches instead is that those who refuse to repent are just consumed. They dissipate. They're gone. And then you will also find the universalist idea, which we'll go into this much further down the road. The universalist idea is that God is going to redeem all of creation to himself. And I think there's a lot of evidence in the biblical record for this idea, and it is what I personally believe. But regardless of which way you go here, I don't think, to me, there's any room for a thinking Christian to allow the doctrine of eternal torment of souls for sins committed in a physical life to remain. I think you have to discard it. And when you do, there's going to be a lot of questions to be asked about what this means. And how you handle, you know, walking out your Christian life from now on if that is no longer true. So, things to think about, guys. If you would like to talk to me, you can leave a message here uh, on the uh, the podcast app uh, where you found me. Or you can send it to uh, hellsuckspodcast at gmail.com. I still have, I have got the hellsucks podcast page up on Facebook, but uh, it's not really showing up in search much yet, so I'm going to need some likes and things over there first. If you're a friend of mine on Facebook, you can find out about it. I will be sharing the posts that I make from there. This uh, episode will be one of those in short order here, Um, and uh, I think that's about it for today, so I will be talking to you later. Thanks for listening.